0: Alright, I think we're going to, it is the time to start, so we're going to start. Um, so the the schedule for today, the, the goal for today, is to um, go through the assignment that's due, I think on the 5th of October, I've posted in the acting exercise folder, which has now three files to help you along with that assignment. I've also posted a more specific breakdown of what you need to do in regard to the word count, so how much, how many words each section should have, etc. And so, I just want to go through that. It's there for you. Um, please use it. But we, I'm gonna put on these captions first, and then I want to just go through that quickly. Okay, so people should be able to see the um, the outline of project file. Can somebody just jump on the mic and, and say that they can see it or not?
1: Yeah, I can see it. <laughs>
0: Great, thank you. All right, so the required parts, these are all in the, the syllabus. So this is nothing new. Um, it's just in a little more detail, as well as a word count. So with the super objective and through line... You know, the definitions of those things, I have that in the the super objective worksheet in the acting exercise portion. Um, About 500 words, and you're going to say what the super objective is, and justify your choice by describing the through line. That is the series of actions that the character undertakes in pursuit of his or her objectives. So what does the character want in the play overall? And name a few actions that help define that. Okay, and it take about five hundred words to do that, and that's going to require obviously uh, a thorough reading of the play, but an understanding of what the character wants with evidence, right, based upon the actions the character takes. Uh, five hundred words for the character outline. Um, you're going to identify various aspects of the character, biography, everything you could think of in the play with regards to the character. Um, the The part that's probably going to require most the most research is the who. Am I or where am I? Sections. Um, I've included two resources on the the other worksheet, uh, and so what it's going to require is, and this is also 500 words, is kind of doing research into, let's say, marriage. Right? If you're going to talk about, um, you know, who who am I, I'm a character, and and I'm interested in um, marrying Rosalind. What were the conventions of marriage in? Uh, 1600 England, right? Circa 1600 England. That's something you you're going to want to write about, and how those kind of conventions affect the character, right? Um, where am I? What's what's your station in life? If you're a kind of minor lord, like a, uh, Orlando is the son of a, a you know Sir Roland, a knighted person. What does that mean? What does the the rank of knight mean in this society? There's a lot of freedom in this part of the assignment. So, it is going to require you to find a secondary source and use that. Um, but which secondary source and in what regard to the, the character biography you're bringing forward is up to you. Do you want to talk about marriage? Do you want to talk about class? Do you want to talk about... Um, kind of laborers, right? If you're doing someone like, I don't know if anybody would do Corin, that, that might not be the best choice, but if you were to do that character, um, this is a, a kind of a laboring shepherd. What was labor like or work like in 1600 England? Um, and you could look at a few articles or books on that, and I'll try and find some more resources. There, the resources I'm posting are uh, books that you can get entirely online. So you, you don't have to um, go to the library. I know a lot of you are either at home, um, out of state, or even out of country in some cases. So these should be resources you could find online. OK? Um, scoring the text, also about 500 words. So you're going to take a, um, a scene that's important, either in, in length or just in terms of the plot, um, and paste it into Microsoft Word, select a speech, or if the speech is too short, a few speeches, or a few lines, uh, a speech in a few lines, and you're gonna score about 30 or more lines just in the way we did that day in in class. So, what that means, I have it listed here, A through E, the stresses and unstressed syllables, the pause point in the line, if you're gonna take a a pause, where you're gonna pause, um, highlight the most important word in the line. What word delivers the most meaning for each line? Now, it may be the case that each line doesn't have a meaning. Maybe if one line runs into the next, there's there's one meaningful word for both. That's fine. Uh, look up words you don't know using the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, be attentive to enjambment, so that's when the line wraps around, and to a feminine ending, endings, so that's when there's an unstressed added syllable or two syllables at the end of the lines why do you think shakespeare's using those techniques you're then after going to after scoring this going to write 500 words on why you've made these decisions right why um, you know pick out you can even do it like pick out four decisions maybe and write in 500 words why you you made those four particular decisions um, if it's you know if it's a iambic pentameter, just plain blank verse, you don't really have to explain to me why you are using blank verse, right? That's the standard. It's really about what what changes from blank verse Shakespeare is doing and why that's important. Okay, um, so that's the general outline. Any questions about this? Okay, oh great. so that seems I guess clear enough good um yeah, and we'll we'll work on other scansion stuff later on. You have um the the Barton chapter and you have the all of the youtube videos or, or all of the videos barton John Barton made on using the text up on YouTube. You're going to be looking for verse not prose so verse is the stuff that is um is written in like a, in scansion right unstressed and stressed syllables stuff that's written in kind of paragraph form that's not to be scanned that's that is kind of um lower class talking right that's that's kind of characters who typically are um not as well-informed, or, or not as well-educated, not as lordly, or characters who are speaking to characters are not as lordly, tend to use more prose form. So when you're doing scansion, you're not you're not gonna be working on prose. And so what you should do over the weekend then is, um, hopefully by now you've kind of picked your character, uh, but what you wanna do over the weekend is maybe pick a selection, a speech you you find interesting that you wanna work on. And that is probably the best way to go about this: is to start with, like, a speech that you think is interesting, um, that you would really like to just to work on, to scan, to dig into, and then expand expand that to the scene. Or if the speech isn't long enough, and, and most of them are probably not going to be 30 lines, um, you know, g- go on from there. Right? Uh, start scanning other aspects of the scene, or the kind of lines leading up to that speech, or the lines following that speech. So I would say the next step in the project is um, kind of selecting some kind of speech or something you want to do and also selecting what in the character's biography you want to research. Is it marriage? Is it class? Is it custom? Um, Is it labor? Okay, any questions about that? Okay, good. So, I'm gonna stop presenting, and then I'm gonna start presenting again, and we're gonna get right into As You Like It. And last time we left off on the All the World's the Stage speech, and so we're gonna start there, and let's actually watch it. Let's uh, actually put this movie to use. I'm gonna do that right now. hopefully this loads <laughs> we might not be watching okay.
1: this wide and universal theater presents more woeful pageants and the scene wherein we play all the world's stage and all the men and women merely players Sits in the entrances, and one man, in his time, plays. Okay. Many parts. His act.
0: Okay. So it's it's freezing up. So let's not do that. Um. But let's talk about the, the speech. So any thoughts on it? What's kind of going on there? okay the the speech is um, Act two scene seven. So he la- so what's the structure? How about that? We'll start there. What is the structure of the speech? Where it's broken into um, it's broken into seven sections, right? So, what do those seven sections represent?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. It's the different stages of life. So, Jacques is walking us through these different stages of life. Okay, and what kind of conclusion does he come to? Um, Well,
1: I guess he's basically saying that life is like a play and like different people come in and exit which is probably people being born and like people dying stuff like that
0: (laughs) yeah exactly so life is like a stage this is the big observation here um and everybody's a player and then you play sort of seven different roles right and then he concludes with last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history his second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. And so he comes to this sort of, um, maybe like a nihilistic conclusion that what is life? It's this kind of brief stint and it ends with oblivion, with the absence of stuff. Um, How do you feel about this speech with regard to the rest of the play? And then, therefore, Jayqueez's role in the play, vis-a-vis the rest of it.
1: Um, I guess it's kind of more serious than, like, the rest of the play mm-hmm. it's Like, a lot of it is... Um, like joking around and like people being in love and like all that type of stuff and mm-hmm. then that's kind of just like a more serious note mm-hmm.
0: exactly yeah so it's it is um what you might call out of time with the rest of the play or a, a different temper from the rest of the play right like you're saying the rest of the play is romantic comedy and here we have like nihilistic, <laughs> you know, we have Nietzsche come in in the middle of this, this romantic comedy and, uh, and talk about how everything is leading to oblivion. Um, do you find Jake's convincing in this? Or do you think the, that Shakespeare is revealing a, a shortcoming in Jake's worldview? Or is he revealing a shortcoming in the kind of romantic comedy worldview? really your opinion there's no there's no right answer to that question i'm just wondering what you what you think
1: i don't know i'd say the play ends like pretty happily so i don't think it's really foreshadowing anything that like to happen like in the play so maybe it's just Shakespeare
0: trying to be like serious for a minute <laughs> okay yeah it certainly I agree it certainly doesn't foreshadow anything right it's not Jaquiz doesn't appear to play a structural role in this play he's not um he's not going to he's he doesn't really advance the plot ever Um he tries to warn Touchstone away from getting married but you know Touchstone still gets married he doesn't really listen to him um, but outside of that, he, he doesn't really play a role in the narrative in the sense of the actions that occur in this play would probably still occur if Jaquies was not in it. So how do you think then, from your own opinion, so let's, let's talk about the movie a little bit. How do you feel um, that character balanced the rest of the stuff going on in the film? Or did he not? he. Maybe we'll make it simpler. Um, wh- what did you guys think of Kevin Klein in this role? Was it similar to how you imagined it when you read it? Was it different?
1: I thought it was about the same. <clears throat> like, I didn't, I wasn't particularly interested in his character mm-hmm. like in the book or, like, in the play or in the movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was just kind of, like, there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay.
0: Okay, so it's about for for Christina it was about the same Kevin Klein kind of did the did the expectation, right? He he, he hit bare minimum. Um and you were you weren't so interested. Okay. And and that, you know, that's fine again, like he's not really part of the plot. He's not part of the drive of it. However, um I said however weird. However, JQ's is always the role that like the famous actor wants, right? So in this movie, you know, Kevin Kline is the Oscar-winning actor, um, and therefore, in within the tradition of this play and the performance history of this play, it makes sense that the most famous or most accomplished actor would play that role. Now, it, it seems like the difficulty we're having is why, right? Since he's not kind of fundamental to the plot, what is... What is he doing? Or why is he interesting? How about that? Why do you think famous actors want to play this character in this play more than any other character in this play?
1: Uh, Maybe it's because he's kind of, like, the most realistic uh, character. And he, he has, like, a pretty wide range of emotions that go from, like, like depressed like super happy and then like very reasonable Mm -hmm. and maybe that's seen as like something that actors want to be able to portray Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that that kind of range you know described him as a manic depressive he's the early modern periods version of a manic depressive um mm -hmm. good and i think he's also he is a kind of balance to the the other characters um the other characters are kind of motivated by, by love, right? By you know a desire to to wed. And this play ends in God. How many people are married at the end of this play? How many weddings do we have? Orlando, Oliver, uh, Touchstone. Is that it? Am I missing? Is it just just three weddings?
1: Yeah, I think it's just the three. Oh, but Silvius, but, 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 Silvius but, but, and Phoebe.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. So four. Yeah. Okay. So the yeah, the yeah so everybody in this play is so we have eight characters are eight main characters with the exception of Jaques and probably the Dukes um, are motivated by marriage, right? And they end with what they want. The play ends with them getting married. We don't need to see them anymore because now they're married. Um, Jaques is the only one not motivated marriage with the exception of the Dukes and the Dukes are already married, right? We don't meet their wives, but they have children. So we we can assume that that part of their life is over. Um, so I think that Jaques, with his kind of pessimistic, melancholic view of the world that also offers him, um, that offers him maybe insight into, into the world and, where does Jacqui's end at the end of this play? Where does he go?
1: Oh, uh, he stays in the woods.
0: Yeah, he stays in the woods. And who does he decide to go see?
1: Um the previous duke that like took over and then decided to not take over, I guess.
0: Yeah. So the previous duke, and this is, we'll, we'll get into this, how romantic comedies end in Shakespeare's time. Um, romantic comedies, the, the idea with a romantic comedy is the problem that is, is preventing everything from being right, just sort of goes away, right? It just becomes air and floats away. This is different from tragedy where the problem um, remains, Right, the problem is always there until everyone is dead. <laughs> and once everyone dies, then the problem can go away. So the problem is a little more firm. Um, you know, airy in romantic comedies, very solid in tragedies. And then there's things called romances, which include plays like um like The Winter's Tale. Right? I don't know if anybody knows that play. The the speech we worked on was from the first act of Winter's Tale. And in that play the, the problem goes away, but it's very difficult. There's consequences. Um, the, the king is separated from his, his wife, who he thinks he's killed out of a fit of jealousy, and he separated her from her for 16 years. And so it's not just the problem goes away and he gets over his jealousy. It's that there's this almost two-decade period where he can't see her. This is also true of the Tempest, where um, there's a falling out. And Ferdinand and his daughter are cast on an island for years and years and years. And it's only through um, you know, the machinations of the play that they could finally get together. So those are these kind of three categories, right? And in comedy, what we see here is uh, the problem just goes away. So how does the problem just go away? How does the Duke that we like take control of the kingdom again?
1: Well, didn't the last Duke who banished um, him? He went into the forest looking for, I can't remember, I think it was his brother or something like that. And he ended up finding religion and just started praying. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, he just stayed in the forest.
0: Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, he just he runs in the forest to kill off his brother. He trips, sees a holy man. The holy man tells him, "You know, that's not too good." And he goes, "All right, that's fine. I'm I'm going to be holy and live in the woods now and be kind of a hermit." And so the pro- and it, it, it it occurs entirely off stage. They film, I mean Kenneth Branagh films it in the movie, but in the play it's just somebody comes in and goes, "Hey guys, guess what? The problem is gone." Um so that that's what happens. And so, getting back to Jaques, kind of tying these strands we've put out there uh, together, let's take a look at the very end of the play. This is uh, Act Five, Scene Four, and this is Jaques's farewell. Um, and so, I'm on line one eighty. Okay, and so Jaques is at this point speaking to who is he speaking to? Okay, he's speaking to the to the Duke, and he says. Sir, by your patience. And then he turns to um, the other the other Jaques, the uh, the uncle of Oliver and Orlando. And he says uh, or Jacques, excuse me, not Jaques, Jacques. He turns to him and says, Sir, by your patience, if I heard you rightly, the duke hath put on a religious life and thrown into neglect the pompous court. He hath. Jaques, to him will I out of these contrivities, there is much matter to be heard and learned. Okay, um, yeah, and so that's that's that. So, what is what is the appeal of the duke to Jaques, to, to the new duke to the new religious duke?
1: Um, it seems like he kind of wants to follow in his footsteps and kind of like try out that lifestyle too
0: yeah he wants to he wants to follow in his footsteps and he specifically says, yeah um there's much matter to be heard and learned All right this is line one eighty five so he seems to be particularly interested in kind of mulling over <laughs> knowledge right so he's he is not driven by the passion so much, the way you know eight of our other most important characters in this play are. Um, and even you can argue the Dukes, too. Uh, he, he's not driven by passion so much, by, but kind of um, an intellectual intellectual gamemanship. He likes mulling over ideas. Um, however, that doesn't divorce him from passion, right? What does it lead to? What does this kind of constantly thinking on thought lead to? Sorry, me, I, I was missing some of your comments before. Um, yeah. The other, uh, Jaquiz provides thought, you said. Great. You know, yeah, I, I agree. I think that there's, um, he provides thought and a kind of variation in tone also. Um, but his kind of constant mulling over ideas leads to kind of melancholy, right? So for J.Q. uh, unlike our, our other characters, he's always thinking on thought. He's kind of expanding. His, he's trying to expand his mind. But the consequence of this is uh, sadness, antisocial behavior, etc. So that's kind of an interesting thing to think about in Shakespeare, is that our our most intellectual character in this play is also the character who by virtue of his intellect and his intellectual pursuits, is at odds or is divorced from the society in which he, you know, otherwise would be a part of. Um, We also learn at the beginning of the play, a little earlier on, a little bit about Jaquiz's life before he goes into the woods. Does anybody remember what little tidbit we learned? What was he like when he was in society, when he was with people? It's a very, it's like a few lines in the second act. So if people don't remember that, that's okay. It's it's a quick thing. What we learned about him is that he was, they describe him using the word libertine. Does anybody know what that means? What a libertine is?
1: Um, Is it someone who has like no morals kind of?
0: Yeah, there's a few different definitions, um, but like roughly, I think what they they mean the, the word in a rough sort of way, which is someone who's kind of given to pleasure, right? They're not interested in their, their let's say their moral code or their ethical code is do what's pleasurable. So, the, I mean, the most famous libertine in history, though, this is... Uh, 170 years separated from this play, 200 years separated from this play, is, you know, the Marquis de Sade. Now, de Sade was also incredibly cruel, hence the word sadism, which which comes from Sade. Um, But the Libertines at this time were kind of people who were, you know, interested in drinking a lot, having a lot of sex, um, eating good food. They weren't necessarily interested in uh, uh, hard work or the religious life or contemplation. So Jay Quees, when he is separated from society and when he's out in the woods and when he starts thinking about things, when he starts using his mind, um, he becomes sort of the anti-Libertine, right? In the end of the play. And I, I think Kenneth Branagh portrays this well, he doesn't go to the party, right? He doesn't celebrate with people, even though the Duke is, is encouraging him to. He, you know, kind of looks at them and then walks off, right? He's not part of celebration anymore, but it seems like at one point in his life he was. And so this is the, this is kind of what happens when the Libertine or the pleasure seeker decides to divorce himself from pleasure seeking. You get this kind of intellectual melancholia. Um, you know, that, That's really at odds with this play. And this play really is about a bunch of people seeking pleasure who have to learn how to manage that, that pleasure seeking. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday, right? Learning how to court. In part, learning how to you know uh, woo the opposite sex um, or the same sex as, as, as it appears at some points in this play. Uh, a lot of that is going to, is going to have to do with um, the management of your feelings. It's not about giving them all up, giving up all pleasure the way Jaques does, because though you may be uh, be able to make brilliant observations about the world or something like that, yet you don't get to be part of society. And you become sick with melancholia. You become depressed. You become depressive. Um, However, you know, just kind of like running around, throwing yourself at the feet of Phoebe doesn't seem to work either, right? Because Silvius isn't getting what he wants until the situation is managed. Um, Phoebe doesn't get what she wants until the situation is managed. Orlando has to learn to kind of manage his emotions before Ganymede can reveal himself as Rosalind. Right, so I think that's that's my reading anyway of how Jaques fits into this play. Um, he is... This, this seems to be a play about balance, about walking the line between passion and logic. There's, there's some sort of middle ground here. Um, it's a play about controlled passion. And I think Jaques is, uh, is sort of passion gone awry. Right? He's one version of that. He's the, the, you know, the person who rejects all material pleasure. And this is a problem. So any any comments about that before we move on? Okay, good. So let's get into act three, (laughs) 15 minutes left and we have two acts to do, three acts to do. So what happens in act three? So what does Rosalind discover?
1: Are they the poems that Orlando left around?
0: Yeah. Yeah, she, fi- she finds the poems, and she learns from her cousin that, that Orlando writes them, right? Um, good. So, easy enough start here. Um, and then, what does she decide to do? This is in 3-2, in Act 3, Scene 2.
1: To approach him as a man, mm-hmm. and like see if she can get him to woo him, but really her every day.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, her proposal, um, her proposal is, I once broke the love spell on someone else. <laughs> right? You know, I've done this before. I've experienced. I, I know. You know, if you come to woo me every day. You will sort of exercise this emotion and get over it right um yeah and so but are you so much in love as your rhymes speak neither rhyme nor reason can express how much and then rosalind says oh this is by the way this is lines uh, 396 and down in three two that i'm reading rosalind says love is merely a madness and i tell you deserves as well a dark house and a whip as madmen do. And the reason why they are not so punished and cursed is that the lunacy is so ordinary that the whippers are in love too. Yet I profess curing it by counsel. Did you ever cure any so? Yes, one, and in this manner. He was to imagine me in love, me his love, his mistress, and I set every day to woo me. And which time would I, being but a moonish youth, grieve, be effeminate, changeable, longing and liking, proud, fantastical, apish, shallow, inconstant, full of tears, full of smiles, for every passion, something, and for no passion, truly anything, as boys and women are, for the most part, cattle of this colour, would now, like him, now loathe him, then entertain him, then forswear him, now weep for him, then spit at him, that I drave my suitor from his mad humour of love to a living humour of madness which was to forswear the full stream of the world to live in a nook merely monastic. So what does she say she's going to do for him? What does that little speech mean?
1: Um, I guess basically that she's going to, like, exaggerate all the emotions of, like, a woman and, like, make him fall out of love with Rosalind.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah exactly he's she she's going to kind of cure him of this disease by um by acting in like the the way the kind of the stereotypical way right she sort of associates female behavior with childish behavior um she she sort of describes uh female behavior of women in love as kind of go all over the place uh which is clearly something she doesn't believe since the person who knows how to manage affection and emotion is Rosalind right she she is the you know she's the most emotionally mature person in this play with possibly the exception of her father which would make sense um, and so she's going to cure him of this love um, and to live in a nook merely monastic What is that? (laughs) What does that mean to act like or live like? I drave my suitor, drove my suitor from his mad humor of love to a living humor of madness, which was to forswear the full stream of the world, all the, the actions of the world, right? The the events, the the society of the world, and to live in a nook merely romantic. Um, (laughs) I uh, slip of the tongue there. Merely monastic. So monastic Mona, one of, right? The monastic, the, the initial monks were alone. That's what a monk would be. They'd go off and live alone. And it wasn't until, you know, the fifth, sixth century, we saw um, monks clustering together, right? And so it became the kind of paradox monks who live together. And it was the hermit then who became distinguished from the monk, and the hermit would live off on his own or her own. Um, and so what Rosalind is saying here is I cured him of his love, and he decided that all of society is not for me. I'm going to live alone in the woods, right? I'm going to live off by myself, right? Now this sounds a lot like whom? Yeah, he's going to be a celibate, right? That's, that's part of being a monk is being a celibate. Unless you're like a, uh, unless you're the youngest child of a king, in which case you could go to a monastery and they're they're basically uh, they're basically fun houses for you. <laughs> monks were not so celibate um, when they were forced to be monks. But. So this is this is a little more like jays, right? This is a little bit more like um, people who reject society. This is the duke at the end of the play. They're off to live a life of being hermits. So this is when love, when the the rejection of love drives you to madness, which is the opposite of Silvius and Phoebe and the opposite at the beginning of the play anyway of Orlando. Where, you know, um, the the surfeit of love drives to madness. But anyway, let's keep going. Um, Then we have Audrey and Touchstone, which is a fun scene. We kind of touched on that already, though, a little bit. Um, yeah, and so we also get in three five, uh, Phoebe and Sylvius. So, what's the situation with Phoebe and Sylvius?
1: Uh, Sylvius is like in love with her, but she is in love with Rosalind as a boy.
0: Exactly, yeah. So he's in love with her, she's in love with Rosalind, and Rosalind is in love with no man, as she says. Um, And so when we get uh, 3-5, right, this is the scene that ends, or the speech that mostly ends, Act 3. And uh, what's so appealing about Rosalind to Phoebe?
1: is it because um rosalind well as i forgot the name um, ganymede i think yeah ganymede Mm -hmm. um kind of like insults her or is very aggressive towards phoebe
0: and she really gravitated towards that yeah exactly that's exactly it. yeah phoebe is uh, phoebe um is, is sort of you know kind of pretend mad at ganymede for being aggressive, but she, she really likes that. And so why does she dislike Silvius as Ganymede slash Rosalind points out?
1: Can you repeat that?
0: Sure. Um, why does, uh, why does, so Rosalind figures out pretty quickly why Silvius isn't appealing to Phoebe. What is that reason? Okay. Silvius is lustful. Yep. So that that's part of it. Yeah. Silvius is lustful and therefore he is. Therefore he's like subservient, right? He's, um, he's willing to do anything for her and she doesn't find that very appealing. She wants the person who doesn't want her, (laughs) you know, it's that kind of arrangement which I think is surprisingly modern, right? I think we'd recognize that all the time. Um, but that's the, that's the nature of that relationship is that uh, uh, Phoebe is in love with this kind of brash young man who wants nothing to do with her. And she is not interested in Silvius because he woos. Um, and part of that's on Silvius. He is not wooing correctly, right? He is, he is uh, kind of falling all over himself. And we could see a sort of, um, maybe a bit of a dumber, more sophomoric version of Orlando in Silvius. I may be reading into that too much, but that's a possibility. Okay, so let's let's keep going here into act four. Um, So what are some things that happen in act four? So right towards the beginning of act four, act four, scene one, What does Rosalind trick Orlando into doing?
1: I may be getting ahead of myself, but does he tricks... um, Does she tricks him to marry her? Exactly. Okay.
0: Right, it's kind of like a... You know, Orlando doesn't realize it because he thinks he's hanging out with a man. Um, But this is a... This would be kind of a legal wedding, you if you before witness swore that you would marry someone that, that was a that was a wedding in early modern period uh, the, the, the same the thing happened you could read about it with like Edward IV Edward IV did the same thing um which was a huge problem for his reign <laughs> uh, but anyway yeah you swear before a witness that you'll marry this person you are married to this person and so you know, while two men couldn't get married, this would just be, um, this would just be kind of performance, or, or, you know, this wouldn't count, right? If it's two men at this period, however, if one of them happens to be a woman, you're married, and so, and we we see this very clearly in the movie because Celia is, um, the person who gives the vows, and she's also, how does she feel about it?
1: Um, she looks like really shocked the whole time. <laughs> yeah, oh. she,
0: yeah. She's she's not too keen on secretly wedding someone that doesn't know they're being secretly wedded, right? That that's not. Um, she's not happy about that. She's a little embarrassed about that. Okay, but yeah, that that's what happens here. And so there's this kind of training period that goes on between Orlando and Rosalind, which ends in kind of Orlando. Uh, revealing himself to be worthy, uh, and so they get married. Orlando might not be aware of it, but he certainly would be happy about it. Um, But moving on, because we have two minutes. Um, So, you know, uh, another thing, another problem that gets resolved is Oliver and Orlando make up. So we have that issue. So... um, Oliver, at one point, is attacked. Uh, Orlando defends him. Orlando gets hurt. And so they, they sort of repair their relationship. Right? Um, and as brothers, they're able to marry the cousins. So we have that. Um, Audrey and Touchstone get married. Um, and Touchstone decides to be a little more of an honest, an honest man. Uh, what sort of drives him to that? What encounter does he? What encounter sort of inspires him to be uh, maybe a little more protective of of um, Audrey?
1: is it when another man starts flirting with her?
0: Yeah, it's William, right? William the Shepherd. This is uh, Act One, Scene Act Five, Scene One, um, which in the movie gets moved up. Kenneth Branagh cuts that from Act Five and puts it like r- r- in the first half of the movie. But anyway, yeah, in 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 that, so he ends up having to deal with like a th- this guy who is also in love with her, and then he, you know, as a consequence, gets his back up straight and uh, and woos her, and then the play ends with. Um you know, as we said before, with everyone getting married. And so we're going to probably touch on this on Monday. For Monday, you have King Lear. Uh, that's, a, that's a very different play, so enjoy that. Um, but l- one thought I wanted to leave with was, what did people think of the high concept for the film, which is, you know, setting it in, in um, 1860s Japan? I it. I thought it was, like, in
1: very taste in my opinion I don't know I think like all of the the fact that there was only like three or so Asian characters and like they didn't even speak was just really weird to me
0: okay alright um, good so any other comments before we, we go we just ran out of time Okay, great. So if anybody has any questions about the... um, Oh yeah, sorry Mia, I keep missing your comments. Uh, But anyway, uh, (laughs) now we're over time. Um, But anyway, uh, so if anybody has any other comments about, or excuse me, uh, questions about the assignment or anything else, just just email me and we we could uh, set up meetings. Okay. Thank you.